ignition switches. On. RPM switches. Set. TD switches. Normal. Doors and hatches. Closed. Lay down. Strobe light. On. Restart check is complete. Clear left. Engineer. Start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast. Clear takeoff from Wing 31 left. All right, we're ready for departure here on the Pilot Project Podcast, your best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF. I am your host, Brian Morrison. With me today is Jackie Ruiz. Jackie first came to my attention after Canada Remembers posted an article about her conducting a medevac in Mali. I reached out to her and she kindly agreed to be on the show. Jackie joined the CAF at age 17 in 2008, right out of high school. She graduated from flight training in 2014 and was posted to 450 Squadron in Petawawa, Ontario to fly the CH-147F Chinook. In 2018, she deployed to Gao, Mali, where she was part of the UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission as a pilot for Canada's forward air medevac capability. Today, she teaches new pilots how to fly the Chinook. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Let's dive right into it. A question I always like to start with is where did flying begin for you? Flying began for me with my stepdad. We had a Cessna 172 growing up, so he had his private pilot's license, and I started flying with him when my feet couldn't reach the pedals, and, you know, I definitely thought I was flying, but I most definitely was not, (laughs) Um, and probably around grade one, I think, is when I first stepped in the front seat of an airplane. So that's awesome, though, that you had that opportunity growing up to get involved in flight like that. How did that jump from flying your stepdad Cessna to getting into the Air Force? So one day we went to volunteer at an airport in Abbotsford, I think it was. And I saw some air cadets parading on the tarmac out there and thought, wow, that looks pretty cool. You know, they were all in unison marching around and was just in awe as a kid. And I looked at my dad and I was like, you know, I want to do that. That looks cool. And so we moved to Ottawa when I was 14 and I joined Air Cadets at that time and loved Air Cadets, went all throughout that prior to the military. And I think it was Air Cadets that kind of led me to the military aspect of it. I remember I got a flight in a Griffin at one point in Cadets and I sat on the side and I was just ripping around low level and, you know, all of a sudden looking at the sky and then before I knew it, looking at the ground and just loved it. And then in there, I'm like, yep, okay, going to be a helicopter pilot in the military. So grade eight is when I think I decided I wanted to be a military pilot. And I actually didn't know this, but a girlfriend of mine uh, a couple years ago told me grade two is when I started saying I wanted to be a pilot. So pretty young. Wow. So that's been in your blood and on your mind for a long time. Yeah, this is all I've ever wanted to do. So I don't know what else I would have done if this didn't work out. So. Luckily, it did. Yeah, I always said that if you want to be a pilot, that's a pretty lucky thing because it's not like when someone's like, well, I want to be a scientist and there's like a thousand branches of science they can go into like a pilot. You want to fly. You want to be a pilot. So that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Did you do like the glider or powered flight program in cadets? No, I actually didn't. So I did basic training. ITAC was my second camp introduction to aviation course. And then I did airport operations course. So kind of managing an airport, crash response, that type of thing. I did try for my glider's license once, but we had to do ground school prior to getting selected. 
and I was number six and they only took five. So I did not get selected. Yeah. Glider is pretty cutthroat to get into. Yeah. Studied quite a bit, definitely with friends, but yeah, was number six. They only took five. So that was the only year I tried though, because I, I wanted to do the other camps first. And then before I knew it, I was 17 joining the military. So yeah, that's awesome that you were in at that age, eh? Because that means pensionable at 42. Correct. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you do phase two at Moose Jaw or in Portage? Yeah, I did phase two Moose Jaw. Okay, right on. So how did you find your flight training experience in the forces? Did you have any big setbacks or anything? I think, you know, everybody at some point has a little bit of trouble. For me, Moose Jaw, I did really well on my day-to-day flights. And then I would just get so nervous for the tests. (laughs) I think I failed two tests while I was there, but you know, I'd snake all the flights Mm -hmm. up to it and then all of a sudden go fail a test, which doesn't make any sense. But in military flight training, the highest mark is standard exceeded denoted by an S it is often referred to as snaking a flight. You know, you just put so much pressure on yourself. You had so much riding on it. You know, that's all I ever wanted to do. And I think they add, you know, more pressure on that course as well to put that extra pressure on you, right? On purpose. So yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. So that aspect. And then for whatever reason, I just get so nervous and make a silly mistake and it is what it is. And then I'd go up on the retest and do fine. So yeah, I'd say phase two, you know, a little difficulty with the tests and just getting over that testitis as we call it. But once I got to phase three, you know, they, you know, very well, they kind of treat you like adults there. Right. So a lot less stress. And I definitely took a lot of pressure off myself there as well. Cause you know, making it through moose jaw is a, you know, big success. So I found once I got to portage for phase three and again, flying helicopters, I think I was definitely meant to fly helicopters. So it was a more natural fit. Yeah, I felt a lot less stress and I, you know, had no problems on phase three, did well throughout the course, did well on all my tests. So yeah, for whatever reason, I guess helicopters maybe came a little more naturally for me and and that's where it kind of sunk in. I feel like phase three, like you said, you're treated a bit more like an adult. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's a little more easy to see like, this is why I'm doing this. And, you know, Moose Jaw is just sort of a giant stress fest of of learning as fast as you can and trying to keep your head above water. And there's a little less of that at phase three. Yeah, exactly. You know, standing at attention in the morning to answer a red page, asking permission to go to lunch, permission to leave for the day, you know, they add that stress on and hey, that's all part of it because we definitely need to be able to work under stress. So totally understand the idea behind it. But yeah, I was definitely, definitely happy to move on to phase three. Yeah, I totally get you. I think too, that that stress and phase two is partly like you're still learning your coping mechanisms and like your healthy methods of like getting over that. And so much of that stress, like you said, is self-imposed and you don't have the tools completely yet to sort of overcome that. Did you develop any kind of like specific ways of overcoming that or was it just sort of a things got better with time type thing? No, I I definitely did. Because, you know, when you do a a retest, that's probably even more stress than the you know, the actual test, yeah. right? Because it really is on the line. So chair flying helped me a lot. So just visualizing, you know, I'm a visual learner. So actually me moving my hands, doing the maneuvers, that definitely helped me. And then I also put in a little kind of reward system. So I would, you know, pass my test and I'd take myself out for sushi because that's kind of my, you know, my favorite thing to eat. So nice. that helped too. It was kind of like a little reward at the end to myself. 
yeah, those were kind of the two things I did, whether they helped or not, who knows, but I think they did because here I am today now teaching young pilots. I like that. I was huge into chair flying, especially at Moose Jaw. I think it's one of the the biggest, best tools in your arsenal because you can basically do the flight over and over again in your head and all those little, all the procedural parts of it, at least you can have nailed down. So all that's left is for the instructor or the sim instructor to kind of correct the maybe the small things that you weren't doing right in your head and and it should be pretty smooth and i think the reward system is pretty smart too it seems like a really yeah like a healthy way to incentivize yourself so that's awesome Yeah, exactly nothing too crazy just a dinner out yeah so you went through all your phase training you finished phase three and it's selection time were you expecting to get the chinook was that something that you had wanted and requested or was it a surprise yeah so I went through pilot training uh, 2012 to 2014, kind of the end of 2014. So we actually acquired the Chinooks when I was going through pilot training, or I should say we accepted our first Chinooks when I was going through training. So up until pilot training, I always wanted to fly Griffins and I thought I wanted to do search and rescue. And then it slowly turned into a love for Tacal, but still wanted to do Griffins And it wasn't until I really showed up to phase three where I kind of even found out what a Chinook was, because again, we hadn't really had them. Once I got there, they had asked for our preferences. So they ask you up front and then they'll ask you again at the end, of course. And again, I didn't really fully know what, you know, a Chinook did and what it was all about, but I knew it was really competitive to get Chinooks at the time. They only had two spots for that year for the remainder of the year. So I decided to put Chinooks first, just in case I changed my mind and decided I wanted it. At least it would have already been number one. Whereas if, you know, I had put Griffin and that as two, I probably wouldn't have got it if I then switched to one. So thought I was being strategic, kept it as one, even though I kind of still wanted Griffins. And then halfway through the course, definitely by the end of course, I had done more research and was like, oh yeah, Chinooks is definitely what I want to do. And luckily I already had it as my number one. And I did very well on phase three and was selected Chinooks, which is what I wanted. So what was it that drew you towards that as you did more research? What was appealing to you that that made you want to go for Chinooks? Yeah, it was the aircraft itself. You know, the Chinook is the fastest helicopter that the Canadian Forces has. It's the heaviest helicopter we have. I just wanted to be a part of that. And then the role itself, Tackel, love it, you know, low and fast potentially in a threat environment, you know, you're working with the ground force. Griffins do that too, but the Chinooks are, I would say, to a different extent. You know, we can carry more troops, so they're going to use us for air mobiles, where they're probably not going to use a Griffin to carry the troops. So just that interaction with the ground force, this is the stuff that I wanted to do. That's awesome. And and that actually dovetails really nicely into my next question, which is overall, what does the Chinook do? What is its role in the Air Force? Yeah, the Chinook transports troops, equipment, and supplies. So could be anywhere from ammunition, food, water, you know, broken down truck. We're going to sling in a Humvee or... So it's basically tactical movement asset. Yeah, exactly. You finish phase three, you go to 450 squadron. How long is the OTU? When I went through, it was a combined course. So it took me eight months, but it's now been separated into BFO and TAFO. So basic first officer and tactical first officer are now two separate courses. So if you can do the course consistently fly probably six months each, so about a year total, but there's always going to be 
other stuff that could be more important. So for example, at the Chinook unit, it's an OTF, so uh, operational training flight instead of an OTU. So the OTF is a flight within my unit. It's not at a separate unit where it's its own schoolhouse. So because we only have Chinooks in Petawawa, that's the only place we can have the school. The course is conducted by 450 Squadron. Correct. So it's an OTF. That's super challenging. Super challenging. To balance operational needs with uh, training needs, I've seen firsthand how difficult that is for a wing, much less for one squadron. So you can imagine the difficulties trying to balance force generation with force employment. Mm -hmm. And just for listeners, force generation is essentially training and force employment is operationally using the aircraft for taskings that have been assigned. Yeah, that being said, courses are taking longer than it did on the old syllabus, just now that they're broken into two courses. So at the end of BFO, there's the potential for them to get a utility first officer category. And then once they're done TAFO, they'll get their tactical first officer category. Now, the intent is to run the courses back to back. We just haven't gotten there yet. So that's the intent. Hopefully this next group is going to be our first one where we can uh, do it back to back and hopefully that'll decrease the training time. So once you are qualified as an FO on the squadron, what does a normal day of squadron life look like on the Chinook? Yeah, probably a normal day at most units. So you're still hopefully going to fly that day. So in that case, if you're flying, you're going to come in two and a half to three hours before the flight, you know, plan your route, check the weather, check the NOTAMs, all that good stuff. NOTAMs are notices to airmen, and they contain essential information and safety notifications for planning your flight. Conduct your pre-flight briefings. The flight engineers and loadmasters are going to do the pre-flight inspection of the aircraft. Make sure that's good to go. And then you'll walk out. So typically a Chinook flight is three hours, but it can be anywhere from three to five hours is what we'll generally do. We won't go above five, although the aircraft can. Uh, it's just a long time to be in the seat. It's a long time in a helicopter. It definitely is. Not going to lie, I've landed a couple times, had to pee. That's a long time not to pee as well. <laughs> so I would luckily die. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. Typical flights, three hours. So you'll go do that. You'll come back. You'll debrief and usually be out of there within an hour and a half post-flight. If you're not flying that day, then you're just working on your officer development stuff, any secondary duties, mm -hmm. helping other people prep for any upcoming missions or flights, that type of thing. I interviewed Pete Musters recently for the Griffin side of Tack Hill, and that sounds quite similar to kind of life in his squadron and most squadrons. How many flights in a week would you typically get? I would say the average pilot gets two or three. That's pretty good. Yeah, as an instructor, we're usually flying four to five times a week, but that could be in the sim or in the aircraft. We're okay. teaching ground school, I guess. So I would say average three to four, but I'm doing something every day. So whether that's ground school, sim or in the aircraft. Yeah, when I was uh, on the Aurora, we kind of found that three max four events in a week in terms of sims and flights was a pretty sweet spot because there's just so much book learning and other things to be done as well and secondary duties that sort of balances out at a happy place there. Absolutely. And I guess I'm a sucker for punishment. I've got like five secondary duties on top of everything. So I'm a busy lady most days. Can you give us a brief outline of both of those courses? Just kind of a two minute synopsis of what they involve and what you learn? Yeah, absolutely. So BFO, you're going to have your basic day sequences. We've got a part one and two. So part one is just your everyday circuit approach, roll on, confined area. 
the, the basic flying maneuvers. Part two sequences are stuff like restricted area roll-on. So you're not necessarily, as a helicopter, always going to be landing at an airfield. So say you've got an issue and you're out in northern Canada and there's only confined areas that you can land in. So what I mean by confined area is, you know, a smaller space. Um, but say you've got that engine issue and you need to land, we've now got a procedure that we teach so that the pilots can get that aircraft into the area on a single engine, even if they're not single engine capable. So yeah, restricted air roll-ons, uh, auto rotations, aft two-wheel landings, that type of stuff. So that encompasses the basic day part one and two sequences, and then the students will have a test after each, so part one and part two. Then they'll usually move into instrument flying and they'll get their ticket, as we call it. So their mm -hmm. authority to be able to fly um, under IMC, instrument meteorological conditions. So flying in the clouds. And then we'll finish off with night again, just basic sequences. So doing what they did by day, just at night. And that's the BFO course. Then they'll move on to TAFO. Again, that's the tactical first officer course. And that's where we're going to teach them how to fly tactically. So again, they'll have a basic day phase and a basic night phase. But at this point, we're going to throw in some tactics, you know, have an enemy force, have a friendly force. They're going to get retasks, have to pick up a Pry Alpha or Bravo, bring them to a medical facility. What's a Pry Alpha or a Bravo? Oh, yeah. So uh, there's a priority of injury. So Alpha is the highest priority. We have to get them to a medical facility as quick as we can. And then it goes down from there, Bravo Charlie being the lowest, and then Delta is deceased. So we'll give them a retask, potentially to go pick up a patient and bring it back to a medical facility. It'd be a retask to go pick up a broken generator. We're just checking their ability to kind of plan on the fly and, and make sure that they're still capable of you know, working to that high standard under pressure and when the plan doesn't go necessarily as planned. So just making sure that sort of the fuel numbers and performance numbers and all that stuff still makes sense. And I remember Pete said for the Griffin, part of that was just involved in, can the aircraft lift this? I suppose that's less of a question with the Chinook probably. <laughs> yeah, definitely less of a question um, with the Chinook. That being said, though, we deal with heavier weights, right? We can carry more people. We can carry heavier loads. So there does come a time when we do have to, you know, factor all that in and if we're in a hotter environment, that plays a factor too. If we've got a heavier load, might mean we have to take less fuel. So we still have that, you know, consideration, but definitely to a lesser extent than the Griffin does. What would you say is the most challenging part of flying the Chinook? Ooh, well, first off, the Chinook is very fun to fly. And I'm not going to say easy to fly, but it's one of the easier helicopters to fly, I'll say. Oh, really? Yeah, we've got the benefits of having modes we can use. So I can have the Chinook hover itself. So I'll put on position and out mode and it'll just sit there right where I told it to be until I tell it not to be there anymore. So all the extra systems on the Chinook um, definitely makes it a lot easier on the pilots. So I would say the most difficult thing when flying a Chinook is flying DAFIX off. So that's without any of our stabilization, automation, anything like that. And it's basically like flying a jet ranger. So there's no extra augmentation for the flight controls. It's just you and the machine. So when you have all that stuff off, is it still decently stable or is it no. pretty difficult? 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's not stable at all. You definitely have to be on the controls and you're making, you know, constant inputs in. It's definitely fun to do, but it's definitely where you also find out who the real pilots are. <laughs> so would you guys typically fly with all that on in, in like a mission setting? Oh, yeah, we're not going to fly with that off on a mission. But we do practice with it off because there could be a time where, you know, there's an aircraft emergency that either a system fails and it kicks off automatically, or there might be a situation where we choose to turn it off because, again, we've got an issue with the aircraft and we want to go above a certain speed. Mm -hmm. We've got two systems. So if one of the systems breaks, we're limited to 100 knots or less. But, you know, say we're in a tactical scenario or, you know, we've got a medical patient in the back, we don't want to limit ourselves to 100 knots. So we might elect to turn everything off because then our next limit is significantly higher. It's 160 knots. So we might elect to do it in that case. So you can do it for extra speed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do it for extra speed when required. So that's why we need to practice it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's Air Force flying in a nutshell, right? We're we're always going to practice the stripped down, difficult, unaided procedures and stuff just in case we have to one day. Because for us, in those moments, there's often no choice but to press and, and make it work. So, Absolutely. Okay, it's sales pitch time. Convince me <laughs> in 30 seconds or less. If I'm a new pilot or someone who's thinking about joining the Air Force, why should I fly the Chinook? What makes it unique and who would it appeal to? Yeah, you want to fly a Chinook because you're going to go faster, you're going to lift more, and you're going to do more than any other helicopter in the Canadian forces. This is the one you want to fly. It is an amazing machine and probably the most maneuverable helicopter we have as well, despite being one of the heaviest. So if you've got a choice, definitely come and fly Chinooks. And if you want to come take a flight, I'll be able to show you why. Right on. What's an important characteristic for someone who wants to fly the Chinook? Two things. So definitely if you've got a more calm personality would be good for tack hell. Like you want to be able to think in a crisis is I guess more what I mean. Just because you are low level, you're fast. And if something happens, I need you to be able to react to that. The other thing is you need to be able to work in a crew environment. So we fly with two pilots and two backenders for most of our missions. It'll usually be a flight engineer and a loadmaster. And you need to have the ability to work in a team and listen to the guys in the back for various reasons. But one of the main things is I can't see behind me. So I don't know if I'm going to hit something behind me in a confined area. So you need to trust and work with your team to be able to get that aircraft into a tight area. Tip to tip, the Chinook is 100 feet by 60 feet. And I'm allowed to land with 10 feet around my rotor. So I only need 120 by 80 feet to land. And if I'm going to land an aircraft with 10 feet all the way around, I definitely need to be able to trust the people who I'm working with and they need to be able to trust me as well. It's interesting that the message that I hear over and over again from people is how important it is to be a team player. And I think that's kind of something we know. But I think that some people have this image of pilots as kind of like a lone wolf hotshot kind of thing from, you know, books and media and, and movies and things. And that's just, it couldn't really be further from the truth. 100% agree. Yeah, you definitely need to be able to work with that team. And I would say that's generic across the Air Force, but especially in TACL. Okay, so now we're going to get into talking about Jackie's experiences in Mali. So first, we'll start with some background information about that situation. 
In 2012, the landlocked country of Mali in West Africa was overrun by terrorist groups moving towards the capital of Bamako in what became known as the Tuareg Rebellion. These groups included a local group, the Tuareg Movement, who allied themselves with Al-Qaeda. During this turmoil, the military launched a coup d'etat, causing most government institutions to collapse in the north of the country, which was soon declared independent by the Tuareg Movement. They themselves were pushed out by the jihadists. We will refer to all enemy forces as Al-Qaeda for simplicity. Eventually, French and African forces were able to push the terrorists north and reclaim much of the independent state. However, Mali requested a UN peacekeeping operation to prevent further destabilization of the region. These troops were deployed in July 2013 with the purpose of protecting civilians, human rights monitoring, creating stability for humanitarian assistance, returning displaced persons, extending state authority, and preparation of free, inclusive, and peaceful elections. 275 UN peacekeepers and personnel have died since 2013, making it the deadliest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. Canada's mission was to provide life-saving medical evacuation services and in-country transport to UN peacekeepers. Jackie and her crew were responsible for bringing a combat medical team from the initial point of injury and bringing them back to a Roll 2 hospital. So what was it like for you deploying to Mali? What were your first impressions of the country? You know, I had a great experience on my deployment overall. Gosh, when I first got there, I was in awe of how these people were living, surviving, and thriving, I'll say. It was pretty crazy to see the local communities and how they were living. Just it doesn't even compare to what we have here in Canada. And you see stuff on TV, but it's definitely different experiencing it in person and being there. You guys were on like a large UN base. Is that right? So we were on a camp called Camp Castor, and we shared our camp with the Dutch and the Germans. The camp was run by the Germans, so they maintained all the buildings. They supplied the mess hall and people for the mess hall. Um, Everything around the camp was run by the Germans, and it's actually a great setup. We had air conditioning in most of the buildings, which was very key when it was plus 50 outside. So that was nice, at least for sleeping. We had some AC. So we were generally three to a room, pretty small room. There was one bunk bed and one single bed and three lockers. And that was basically all you could fit in that room. So pretty small, but really nice buildings, really nice conditions. The food was excellent, actually. They had a schedule, so you pretty much knew what was going to be on the menu for that day. (laughs) It was pretty much the same thing every Monday, every Tuesday. We always had the option, you know, for lunch, they would have a sandwich area, so you didn't have to take the mainline meal. You know, you could go make your own thing. Yeah, some of the best uh, mess eating I've ever had was in the dining facility in Kuwait. Oh, crazy. Yeah. It's nice to have air conditioning. It's nice to have good food. It makes it a lot easier to (laughs) keep on trekking. Yeah. And I definitely had exactly what you said. You get into that routine. You know, I think halfway through the tour, uh, I was there for six and a half months. And I think halfway through every day at lunch, I would make myself a panini and have a little salad. And that was kind of just something to look forward to uh, every day. So yeah, you definitely get into those routines for sure. (laughs) It's comfortable. It's comforting to to kind of have your little routines and to know like, you know, silly as it sounds, I'd have a slice of carrot cake every Sunday and it's something to look forward to through the week. And, you know, it's small things. And when you're back in normal life, it sounds a little ridiculous. But at the time, it's nice to look forward to those things. Yeah, it means so much at the time. Absolutely. What did your average day look like there? 
So I was the aviation battalion flight safety officer as well. So I was the lead flight safety person for the aviation battalion, which consisted of Griffins and Chinooks. So most of my day actually was dealing with flight safety. So it was pretty crazy. We had, I think, a hundred flight safeties in the six and a half months that we were there. But you know, that actually shows the good reporting culture that we had. So I was happy mm-hmm. to, you know, have the extra work because it meant that people were reporting and then we were able to learn from, you know, maybe someone else's mistakes. So that took up most of my days, you know, so I'd brief the commander in the morning. I would do some investigation um, or, you know, assign stuff to my team. And then I would do the final review before sending it off to be closed or moved to tracking or whatever that might be. So most of my days was taken up by that with the exception of when I would fly. So if I would be on the schedule for a standby shift or for another mission, then my day would consist of focusing on that mission or that task uh, specifically. And what was the op tempo like? How often were you flying? We prepped we flew, I'd say twice a week, maybe three times. Yeah, I got a good amount of flying over there. That's awesome. Was it only Canadian aircraft flying or was there a bunch of different types of aircraft operating there? No, there were definitely a bunch of other aircraft there. So we shared an airfield in Gao with two other camps. So there were three camps there total. So we had Camp Castor, which the Canadians, Dutch and Germans were all sharing. And then the center camp was the UN camp. So that was where local people would go to work who worked for the United Nations. And they had a big ramp there. And that's where, you know, it was kind of a hub for like UN supplies and stuff too. So they'd come in by an airplane and then maybe go out by one of our helicopters, for example. So that was kind of the main ramp for the airfield. And then on the other side were the French and the Brits. They shared a camp uh, over there. Yeah, the reason I ask is you talk about flight safety and having a bunch of flight safety incidents, but I think it's a lot more common when you're operating in a foreign country. There's going to be local procedures that you have to learn sometimes by experience. And once you start mixing in a bunch of different nationalities and air forces, it's just more likely to be a misunderstanding or a miscommunication or just like different countries doing things in different ways. And it just results in some pretty rapid learning usually, and those take place in the form of flight safeties. And it's important for the people listening to understand that a flight safety report doesn't mean there's been an accident. Anytime there's been even the potential for something to go wrong, we'll file a flight safety and do the investigation so that we can learn from even what could have happened in order to sort of maximize, you know, lessons in aviation are often written in blood. And we try to avoid that and learn even from the uh, the potential for something to go wrong. Pick the words right out of my mouth. So now that we've talked about what life was like there in general, we're going to get into the mission that first got my attention and and led me to reach out to you. Early in the morning on Sunday, January 20th, 2019, Al-Qaeda launched a complex attack using armed vehicles against a UN camp in Eaglehawk, northern Mali. UN forces were able to repel the attack, killing several attackers, but 10 UN peacekeepers were killed and 25 others injured. And that's where Jackie and her crew came in. So how did that day start for you? So I'll I'll back up a little bit. This was at the end of my tour. So we were conducting the handover with my group, which was Roto Zero, over to Roto One. Of course, it happens then, right? So I was one of the last to leave. I was on the third rip out. And that was, again, because I was the battalion flight safety officer. So I had two weeks of handover with the incoming member. 
So for the last week that I was there, the same crew held standby, which was not normal. Normal, we would switch off. I believe it was every two days. So we held the standby for a week. And that was just so that the new guys could orientate themselves to the land. So they were doing their famil flights. They were getting accustomed to being in, you know, the plus 40, plus 50 heat, which was not a normal thing for Canadians, right? So my crew held standby for a week. And, you know, it's crazy. I don't know why, but I just had a feeling that something was going to happen the day prior. For whatever reason, I was like, oh, for sure, we're getting a call out today. And then when it didn't happen, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's the end of the tour. You know, I felt accomplished and we had done good work. And of course, that's when it happens, right? When you least expect it. So we were supposed to hand over that capability fully to Roto One at noon on the 20th. And we got the call at 7.30 in the morning. So it started for me and my crew by somebody opening the door. Because when you're on standby, we would sleep at our main building that we worked at. There were rooms, bunk beds and stuff for you to sleep in. So one of the ops guys, I'll back up again. Normally they would radio us and we could be in our own personal rooms during the day. And we would just have a radio. So if we got a call out, they would recall the whole crew and go from there. But if we had to stay overnight, then we would go and sleep at the actual unit just to make things quicker, right? So yeah, 7.30, the door to where we were all sleeping opens up and someone's like, medevac, and just yells. And like, we're all sleeping. So we kind of like open our eyes and we're like, what? And he's like, get the up medevac and we're like oh okay (laughs) so we get going and you know i ran for a quick pee because just woke up from sleeping and then you know boots untied throw the uniform on hair is not done i'm running out to the aircraft trying to throw my hair up i mean we probably looked ridiculous but you know we just wanted to get there as quick as we could so me being the first officer i ran to the aircraft to go start it up Uh, The aircraft commander, Captain Pete Hanley, went to ops to get the INT briefing and the mission briefing from ops, any information that we had at that time. And the flight engineer, loadmaster, and door gunner followed me out as well to the aircraft for the start. So I went and started up the aircraft. We got permission to conduct starts um, not using the checklist while deployed. We were able to do them from memory with the caveat that the door gunner would be um, following along with the checklist open behind us so that if the first officer missed something, you know, they would speak up and be like, oh, you forgot this check. And then we would do it. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So luckily um, that sped things up a lot, actually. Um, And I had the aircraft started. We had our countermeasures all good to go, worked up and all within six minutes, which was almost unheard of. But Yeah, six minutes ready to go. Pete came out. He got himself sorted in the seat, gave a quick update brief. So all that we knew at the time was that there was an attack up in Aglehawk and they needed help go. That was it. We had no essay on enemy injuries, anything like that. It was a, hey, we've been given a task, go. So if you draw a straight line from Gao, which is where we were, to Aglehawk, it's basically a two-hour flight. The Griffins 
don't have legs to be able to go two hours um, and then go somewhere to refuel, which would be Kedal. And Kedal to Agohawk is a 45-minute flight. So if you kind of draw a triangle, you know, Gao to the north-northwest is Agohawk, two hours. And then you go Agohawk to Kedal. Kedal is east of Agohawk. That's about a 45-minute flight. And then if you go Kedal back to Gao, Kedal is north of Gao, and that's about an hour, 45-minute flight. So that's kind of just to orient everyone here. So we got authorized to go single ship from Gao to Kedal, which was where the Griffins were going to have to refuel. So we actually had to go to Kedal for the Griffins to refuel prior to going to Agalhawk. And that was just because they didn't have the legs to do it. The legs meaning the fuel. They didn't have the fuel to do it. So the uh, Griffins took off first because they were ready first. Once Pete got in, we got our update brief. We taxied out, did our hover checks, and, and off we went. So the Griffins, by the time they got going, you know, they were probably five minutes ahead of us, maximum 10. And I went you know, balls to the wall, uh, as they say. <laughs> so I was pulling 95% torque the whole way there and we got there half an hour ahead of them. So we made really good time getting there. And part of the reason we did that was so we could get a update brief prior to going to Agalhawk. Because again, we launched with very little information, right? So we landed, we took on a little bit of fuel not full bags, just a little bit, because at that time, our understanding was we were going to bring any patients we picked up back to Cadell because that was the closest medical facility. So we didn't want to waste time taking on all this fuel when we could use that time better and, you know, take on what we need and then send them over to the Griffins when they landed and got there. So that's what we did. We took on a bit of fuel and then we met up with the Sector East commander, who at the time, I believe was a French general, very nice man. And he gave us a bit of an update from there. So his update brief from what I remember was that there were still injured personnel requiring pickup and that the terrorists who did the attack had stolen a UN pickup truck. So that to us told us we had to positively identify friend or foe. So any white pickup truck that had UN on the side didn't necessarily mean it was friendly to us at that time based off of that intelligence. Yeah, no kidding. Which is huge. So that was a big piece of information, which um, we definitely utilized. And then the other thing was that one of the OPs hadn't checked in. So one of the observation points, uh, one of the outer perimeter points that is used, you know, you'll have someone in there looking out prior to the main base. And one of those points hadn't checked in. So we didn't know if those soldiers at that point had been killed or captured or injured and weren't able to call. We didn't know. So that was another piece of information because we want to avoid that point initially because we don't know if that's been taken over by the enemy in this case. So really good information that we got. And one thing that I didn't say, on our way in, there was an MI8 that had come in with wounded. And so we weren't sure if we were late to the party or if there were, you know, more injured persons to be picked up. And it was at that time that the French general um, let us know, no, 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 there are definitely more people to go and pick up and, you know, please get going as soon as you can. So that's exactly what we did. Okay, well. The Griffins fueled up, they landed fueled up, and we went as a package. So the package in, in Mali was one Chinook and two Griffins. So the intent was that we would fly in a formation together 
But then the Griffins would go prove that the landing site was safe prior to us bringing in that medical team. So that's kind of how we work. So you could always expect if you saw a Chinook, there'd probably be two Griffins nearby. So yeah, they refueled and then off we went. So we landed at the grid we had been given initially, no updated grid, and we land and there's nobody there. And we're like, what? We were expecting all of these, you know, injured people who needed help and nobody's there. So we're like, what is going on? So we sent out one of our force protection members. I guess I should say that the medical crew on the Chinook consisted of one doctor, one nurse, two medics. So we would have four medical personnel on the aircraft as part of that Ford Air Medevac capability. And we would have four force protection members. So that was usually infantry soldiers who had deployed with us, and they were tasked with protecting those medical people and the aircraft when on the ground. So if we sent the medical people out to go get a patient, they're not focusing on what's around them. Well, I'm sure to an extent they are, but their primary focus is on that patient and making sure that they're doing everything they can for that patient. And in order for them to do that, they need to make sure that they're safe as well. And our you know, response to that was to have soldiers protecting them. So those four force protection members would be out there all the time with them as well. So what we did is we dropped maybe one or two of the force protection people off. And I think uh, the medic and the nurse. And then we took off again. Off we went. And we went to a safe height and a kind of a safer location to keep that Chinook asset safe. And then the Griffins would stay and provide that overhead protection for the personnel we had on the ground. So the location we were told to land at was right next to the FOB in Aguahawk. FOB is forward operating base. So the people we dropped off were able to make contact with the people at that local FOB and kind of get the low down there. Because again, we didn't really have too much information at that point. So that was great that they were able to do that. Now, while that's going on, Pete and myself up in the aircraft get a message from Ops and they say, hey, Valkyrie, you're going to bring those people back to Gao. And we're like, oh, <laughs> okay, stand by. Because again, remember, we had planned that 45-minute flight worth of fuel to bring them back to Kidal because again, that was the closest facility. So our assumption once we received that message from Ops was that Kidal was full and that's why we had to bring them back to Gao. So you know, we said stand by. Pete did a quick fuel calculation. And based off of the fuel that we had, again, expecting to go to Canal, which was less than half the distance, we realized that we only had four minutes. So we had four minutes worth of fuel to find these patients, oh, wow. pick them up and bring them all the way to Gao. So we discussed it as a crew. And we made the decision to use up that 15 minutes that you always plan with for VFR fuel. And we gave the ground force 19 minutes. So the four plus the 15. So we radioed our guys on the ground and we said, hey, guys, we have 19 minutes to find these people and take them back to Gao. Otherwise, instead of a two hour flight, we are going to have to bring them 45 minutes to Canal to get fuel, and then another hour, 45 minutes after the time it takes to refuel back to Gao, which is just not acceptable because I'll tell you later on just how bad these patients were, but they did not have the ability to go to Canal, wait for us to refuel, and then go. So 
that was the time we gave them. We let ops know that, okay, that's what we're going to do. And luckily, the guys we dropped on the ground were able to make contact with that fog pretty quickly, find out where these injured personnel were. And we were actually able to pick them up and get going all within that 19 minutes. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. So we find out where they are and somehow it's communicated for them to come to us. So we're told, hey, come back in ready for pickup. So that's what we do. We uh, do that approach back down, grab our guys and we wait. And what do we see coming towards us? Bunch of white pickup trucks with UN on the side. And if you remember from earlier, we had to positively identify now because, again, we didn't know for sure if they were friendly or foe. So at that point, I was in the left-hand seat. Pete was in the right-hand seat. And normally our flight engineer will be on the right cabin door. And the left door will be our door gunner. And the ramp will be manned by our loadmaster. So at that point, um, the trucks were coming from our 11 o'clock. So that was my side of the aircraft to clear. And I said to our door gunner at the time, Andy, I was like, hey, get ready. Coming at our 11 o'clock, I gave a distance and I let him know that I was ready to pull pitch, as we say, or take off and to be ready to shoot if required. So he was ready on his gun. We were all prepared. We were looking where we needed to look. And as they got closer, we could see there were multiple vehicles. And again, we had only been told one was stolen. So that, you know, gave a little bit of a okay, this might be who we're expecting. And then we they get closer and gosh, it was out of the movies, I have to tell you. Like these guys, they were laying in the back of these pickup trucks. Their buddy were holding saline drips up as high as they can and they were not doing well. Wow. Yeah, we could, uh, we could see them coming and thank God we were there to help. So they came, we stayed on the ground. We, uh, took on the casualties. We had one Pry Alpha, and you'll remember from earlier, that's the highest priority. They need to get to a medical facility immediately. We had three Pry Bravos and four Charlies. So we had eight patients in total for the four medical staff. And one of our Pry Charlies had been shot in the head four times. Wow. Luckily, they were grazes. He was just in shock. So that was why he was on board our aircraft. But that'll give you a sense of what these guys went through. And of course, we didn't know that at the time. We found that later on. I was going to ask if the wounds were largely gunshots or explosion related or... Yeah, largely gunshots. So for two of our patients, the medical staff, we found out again later, couldn't find veins to get you know an IV in. So they had to drill into their bones to get blood product in for them to even begin to start working on them. So I think one got drilled in below the knee and another got drilled into the shoulder. They were not in a good place. And our medical guys we had on board that day were unreal. And they did an amazing job. I'll backtrack a little. So we get these guys on board. We now take off. and. Now it's a balancing act. You want to get them there as quickly as you can, but a Chinook vibrates quite a bit. And when you're injured and you have broken bones and your intestine are out of your body, like you have to balance. Okay, yes, we want to get them quick, but the faster we go, the more vibes we have. So can these people handle that? Like, is this, you know, going to make it worse? 
And then the other aspect was our fuel. So we had to set the best speed. That was ultimately was the highest priority was we had to make sure we mm-hmm. could we could get there. For listeners, you know, you may think on the top of your head that, hey, just go as fast as possible. But ultimately, each aircraft has a speed that is kind of the most fuel efficient that'll get you the most distance. And in this situation, as much as you may want to be there as soon as possible, when you're at minimum fuel, you have to set your most efficient speed. Exactly. So again, I I did all the flying for that day. Um, I was the PF and the PM was Captain Hanley there. PF means pilot flying and PM means pilot monitoring. So as soon as we got up to altitude, that was when he immediately did another fuel calc just to make sure that we still could, in fact, get back to Gao, which is where we were told to bring these people. And we still had enough fuel to get there. Again, it was going to be tight, but we did have enough. So, yeah, we set that best speed. And, you know, at the time, you know, we're kind of amped up. And so we don't fully realize in the front, or I'll say, maybe I won't speak for him, but I know I didn't realize exactly the magnitude of what and who we had in the back. So for us, we're just like, okay, we picked these people up. This is awesome. We're getting them to a medical facility. Like, yeah, we're doing our job. This is going to be great. And then 30 minutes out from Gao, that's when our medic passed the mist. And that was when Pete and I up front, I think, realized the magnitude of what was going on in the back of that aircraft. Because on my side, I also don't have a mirror. At least Pete had a little mirror he could kind of look back on. What's a mist? Oh, um, it's a quick synopsis, essentially, of the damage that the person has received. So it's like a quick synopsis of what's going on with the patient that you can push forward to the medical facility that they're going to so that they have an idea of, A, what's coming for them, and B, who to send out to meet and accept these people from us. Okay, so this is information for you guys to pass forward to the people receiving you on the ground. Exactly. Yeah. For the medical people. So this just gives them a a kind of an understanding. So at least for me, that was the first time I kind of realized exactly like what the hell was in the back of our aircraft. And these people were not in a good state. And thank God we went and got them and had the people on board that we had, because I'm telling you, those people did some good work for these guys that we picked up. So we're 30 minutes back from Gao. That mist was passed up to ops and then disseminated to the appropriate people from there. And shortly after that, I think probably 10 minutes later, we got a, uh, a low fuel light, which again, we were expecting. And turning final, we got our, actually not turning final, part of that, probably five minutes back, we got our other low fuel light, but still enough fuel to make it 100%. So we weren't worried about it. Continued, did our approach, and the drop-off point was always at the Minusma ramp or that center ramp that we talked about earlier, the UN ramp. So that's where we went in. And as we're taxiing in, we didn't see anyone there. So we started getting a little mad, like, holy we've got all these, like, badly broken people in the back of our aircraft. Like, where the hell are these people who are going to accept them? Well, it turned out as we got closer, they were just so neatly lined up on the side that it just looked like parked vehicles, but they were actually, you know, the medical vehicles ready to receive us. So as we get in, we're like, oh, okay, thank God they're already there. Yeah. So we taxied in and we did the offload. And during the offload, I was managing the fuel. So 
I saw that we had 780 pounds in the right tank and 430 pounds of fuel in the left tank. So while we're on the ground, I opened the crossfeed, turned off the left pumps and had both engines pulling fuel from the right tank, which again had more fuel at 780. And we did the offload. And I think that took, gosh, time is hard to tell that day, but yeah, no doubt. You know, I'm sure it took probably up to 10 minutes just because, again, we had eight people that our medical staff had to do transfers for. So they did that transfer and then we're ready to get going again. And so we put all the pumps back on, closed the crossfeed, got ready for the taxi. And then we're heading back to our side again, because remember, there's, you know, those three camps that shared the runway. So we're now taxiing back to our side and definitely we're parked in spot. And before I was able to shut down the engine, it it shut down itself. So (laughs) number two flamed out, uh, ran out of fuel. So, you know, it really was. It was close, but we we knew that, you know, we that's why you have those 15 minutes of fuel for VFR that you plan for, because that was our saving grace. And that was the option that we chose and made a conscious decision to use so that we could get those people back to where they needed to go. So it was still surprising when it happened, um, but also, you know, I guess kind of to be expected. So, you know, our fuel planning worked out and we were able to do what we needed to do. Yeah, it sounds like you guys planned it out perfectly. I mean, those are the kind of textbook situations where you would take your fuel down to the wires to save someone's life or in your guys' case, maybe eight lives. So absolutely, I don't see a better time where you would do that. And I'll tell you this, as far as I'm aware, everyone lived. So our Pry Alpha, yeah, our Pry Alpha, the surgeon that he needed, the leading surgeon was in Gao that day for one of the countries we were working with. And he was able to get surgery in Gao immediately. And that's definitely saved his life. And he was uh, air evac'd out. I'm not sure where he went, but he was air evac'd out the next day outside of Gao. And we were told that he survived and he was the one we were worried about. So yeah, we actually had a hand in saving lives, which was pretty cool. So horrible situation and and horrible day for them but canadians actually helped save lives and we you know we made a difference over there so that was pretty cool to be a part of so when you guys got this tasking and you're getting ready to go did it feel like any normal flight or did you guys have a feeling that this was something big no it didn't feel like something big it was uh we got a task so we had Mm -hmm. had other medevacs prior to that definitely nothing to this extent I think we had seven in total for my roto. I was a part of two, but they were as easy as somebody broke a thumb, wasn't able to get back right away. So they asked us to pick them up. You know, it could be as easy as that. It doesn't have to be as as crazy as the Agahawk day. I don't think it was until after, like I got home and was reflecting back on that day that I really realized like what we did that day. So yeah, definitely at the time, no, it didn't feel any different. When you guys found out there had been an attack, and especially with that truck missing, did you feel there was much risk of, say, landing and then there being a repeat attack or a plan to draw in aircraft? Or was that not on your mind? That was definitely a possibility. But again, at the time, that was not on my mind. The mission was to go pick up these people and we were going to go do that. And if something came up unexpected, we were going to deal with that. And we were still going to go pick up those people. So 
that was kind of the mindset. Um, I'm sure like subconsciously considerations were made and things were thought about, but we had our mission and that's what we were going to get done. And again, I don't think it was until later reflecting back on it that I really realized how poorly things could have gone. But at the same time, like we were trained to do a job. And so my mind was set on doing that job and completing that mission. So it's probably later on. Did you find that having that force protection personnel and having, I think you guys have three guns on the Chinook, does that give you a certain sense of security? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we talked earlier about trusting your team and being able to work in a team. And, you know, we had all worked together previous to the deployment, but more specifically on the deployment. And I trusted every single person on that aircraft, just like I know they trusted me. So I wasn't worried. I felt safe all the time. I felt like I was well protected. Yes, you're correct. We have three C6s on the Chinook, one in the left door, one in the right door, and one on the ramp. And then we also always had our Griffin escorts. And uh, they had a Gao 21, and they had a Dylan on board. So we're definitely well protected firepower wise. And then you know, whenever we're on the ground, the Griffins were overhead, keeping an eye out for us. And then we also had those force protection personnel on the aircraft. So in the event, we had to go to ground for whatever reason, whether we're shot down or an emergency landing or whatever it might be, we had those four people on board and they were the experts in their field. So, you know, the air crew are the experts when we're in the air, but say we ever had to go to ground, then it was already understood that those four soldiers were going to take control and we were going to listen to them because, you know, we all wanted to survive. So luckily that never happened. We never had to rely on them. But at no point did I feel unsafe. I always felt safe there. What were you as air crew armed with? So we had the C8 or C7, depending what they gave us. I had a C8 uh, and a pistol. And that'd be the Browning high power? A firm. Old faithful. That's it. So this mission led to a mention dispatches for a bunch of the crew, including your captain, as well as a bunch of the medical team, and I believe the leader of the force protection team. Correct. As well as a Canadian Forces Unit commendation for your uh, Roto Zero. When did you guys find out about that? We found out when everyone else found out, actually. <laughs> or, or I'll say <laughs> I found out. <laughs> so I don't know if the people who actually got the mention in dispatches were told earlier or not. I'm not sure. But yeah, the rest of us found out with everyone else. So all of these mentioned in dispatches were definitely very well earned. I hope you can see that for yourself, judging by the story. You know, there were some incredible people that day who did an incredible job. I would say went above and beyond what is and should be expected of them. Um, So those mentioned in dispatches were definitely very well deserved. Um, And yeah, we found out at the same time everyone else did. It sounds like a very complex mission with a bunch of changing parameters and a bunch of people had to make the right decisions in a very quick, timely fashion or people were going to die. And it sounds like you guys did everything right, right down to the line. And so everyone lived. So it sounds worth a mention of dispatches to me. And one thing I didn't mention is, you know, absolutely the story of picking up these people and bringing them back was definitely one to mention, but that wasn't the end of our day. (laughs) So we refueled and we went back out and we actually resupplied that fob because they had lost, you know, I think it was like 25 people injured and 10 deceased or something like that at the end of the day. So 
they needed to be reinforced because this was not, you know, a big fob, again, forward operating base. So we took a bunch of soldiers. I think we had 43 total in the end. And uh, the Chinook is rated for 32 with seat belts, but we got off to seats plus. So yeah, we had uh, 43 people, if I remember correctly, in the back of the aircraft. And we loaded up the center of the aircraft with ammunition for them to bring in as well. And I think some water. And we went back out and we brought them to Kidal. And subsequently, they were they were brought out to the uh, Ford operating base after that. And then finally, as the... Uh, the sun was starting to go down. We made our way back to Gao because we waited in Kidal for a bit just to make sure there wasn't any follow-on attacks or anything like that where they they needed our help again. So yeah, we waited a little bit after that. And then kind of as the sun was going down, that's when we're like, okay, we think our day is done and and we're going to head home. That's a long day. It was a long day. And yeah, lots of aircraft that day, lots of Canadians helping out and, uh, at the end of the day, we definitely, I know that we made a difference in the people that we picked up. I think the article I read said three Griffins and two Chinooks that day were launched. So Canada was doing a lot of good work that day for sure. Yeah, we were. So do you think that that would qualify as probably your best day in the aircraft in your time in the Canadian forces? <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Hands down. That is the day that I'll, uh, I'll tell my grandkids about one day, and that's the day where I think I felt most accomplished in my 14 years. So taking a step away from Molly and just getting into a couple more kind of generic questions that I think are good for the prospective pilots to hear. What is the most important thing you do to keep yourself ready for your job? I think the most important thing is to take a break when you can. So I think we have a, a lot of us are type A personalities and we have a tendency for, you know, we want to be the best. So we're go, go, go. We're going to get it done. And, and that's the type of personalities that we need, honestly, in, in this job for most of the job, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. So, you know, we do need those people, but it's important to understand that when you can take a break, you need to take that break so that you are ready to do the job when you're asked to do it. And whether that's an exercise or a deployment, I'm sure you can attest to it. We're gone so much on training and doing our job for deployments and stuff like that, but we're gone so much that, you know, when you can actually take that second and just relax and be with your friends and be with your family, it is really important to do so. And that's only mm -hmm. gonna benefit you later on. I love asking that question because everyone gives me a different answer and they're all great pieces of advice. And it is so important to maintain that balance. I think especially it's insidious in this job where you're doing something you love, you're doing something exciting, but it's also really hard. It's very difficult and it's very demanding. And yeah. you can, even though you love it, you can burn yourself out if you don't maintain a balance and you don't take breaks. So I think that's a great piece of advice. We're down to the last couple questions. The next two are kind of philosophy on being a pilot. So what do you think makes a good pilot? The biggest one is being able to work in that crew environment. Now, maybe that's not the case for the fighter pilots. I can't speak to that because I am not one. But definitely in helicopters, TACL for sure. But I would suggest fixed wing as well. You need to be able to work in that crew environment and be able to trust the people around you. And I think that that trust is earned. There's a certain level of trust that is assumed by the fact that you have passed all of your courses and you have your wings. But I would say that last 20% is earned. And that can also be lost, right? If you, uh, oh, you yeah. have a situation where 
someone doesn't perform where you expect them to, and you could lose that trust. So that's the biggest thing for me is being able to work in a team because I need to be able to trust the people that are in my aircraft, whether it's the one beside me or the guys in the back. And I need to be able to trust them 100%. And I think that applies to everybody. I've had lots of discussions on the show about the importance of teamwork. And it's no surprise that that would be a top contender in terms of what makes a good pilot. And again, I think we did touch on that earlier that a lot of people listening might make that assumption that, you know, pilots would be a hotshot standalone kind of person. And that's just a false image. Even amongst fighter pilots, they need to learn to work with their squadron and with their wingmen. And certainly with any kind of crewed aircraft, if you're not a team player, it's just not going to work for you. So absolutely. If you're listening to this and you want to be a pilot, you need to be working on your ability to work in a team and play nice with others. Hopefully this show attracts new pilots, people in the training system now, potentially air cadets, people who are interested in joining. So what would your advice be to those prospective pilots? I would just say, you know, keep working towards that goal. You can definitely do anything you set your mind to. I think both you and I are proof of that. So keep working towards that goal. Do everything that you can to get there. And one day you will. If you want it bad enough, you can really do anything. And also, if, you know, maybe it doesn't work out, then maybe there was another path you were meant to do. And and that's okay, too. But I would suggest that, you know, if you put in the work and you truly put in the work to study and chair fly and, and all that, if pilot is what you want to do, then then really you can get there. That's really good advice. You know, it doesn't just happen. Even if you're a good pilot, it doesn't just happen. 100%. At this level, it takes a lot of work. You're going to be running checklists nightly. You're going to be practicing. You're going to be sitting in a chair in your kitchen pretending to fly an airplane Absolutely. <laughs> it's it takes a ton of intentional effort. And if you're listening to this, you need to think long and hard about if this is what you want to do. And if it is, then you just give it. And I also, though, really appreciate what you said that it's true. It, it isn't for everybody. And you may try this out and then decide yourself not to continue or you may not make it. And that's OK, too. It's it's always good to go and give it a try and when you're in flight training, it feels like it would be the end of the world for it not to work. But the truth yeah. is, it's a big <laughs> world out there. So you may find it's not for you and, and there will be something else. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So that's pretty much it as far as questions that I had. I think that was great. Thank you so much for having me on here. I definitely was a little nervous telling the story because, you know, I've told the story over a beer before, but never publicly. So it's a hell of a story. I think you did a great job. And I kind of went to do some research because I wanted to gain some background knowledge. I was really surprised to see that there was not really, you know, there was the same article in every every newspaper, they had all just sort of said the basics of an attack happened and Canada launched so many helicopters. And here's the commander's quote. And that's that. And I kind of thought there would be more on the attack or something. But it just sort of seems like this mission was fairly quiet. So I hope people hear this and they learn more about it and learn more about what you guys were doing over there. That's 100% a true statement. I was also surprised that the story wasn't really told. And I don't think even people back in Canada in the military fully realized what we did that day. Like It really was pretty incredible. And yeah, the fact that the story hasn't been told until literally today, until right now, um, is pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. And the mention in dispatches were put forward and 
thankfully those were accepted for, you know, some of the members of the crew. But yeah, and I was mm-hmm. also surprised that the story never got out, but also, you know, I haven't really said the story until now and and I know no one else mm-hmm. really has other than friends. So, I think people just don't know about it and then all of a sudden these mention in dispatches came out and the unit citation and I think that was when people were kind of like, "What? What happened?" <laughs> I mean, I, I know that when I talk to, and I keep saying Pete, like as if you know him, I think I said before, Pete Musters is the guy I interviewed for Griffins and he's mm-hmm. a good buddy of mine here. He was familiar with it. I said, oh, I'm going to interview Jackie Ruiz and she did that medevac in Mali. And he goes, that's quite a story. So he, the story has made its rounds, at least amongst Tack Hill, but hopefully some people yeah. hear this and it gets out there because it's a hell of a story and you guys accomplished something really amazing that day. It is a hell of a story. Yeah. And I'm proud of what we did and I'm proud of the crew and yeah, we did something pretty incredible and it was, it was cool to be a part of that, but even better, um, those people lived. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciated hearing about the mission and your insight about flying. And I just really appreciate you taking this time to hang out and chat, especially because it was kind of an out of the blue message. So thanks so much for making time for this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm I'm really glad you, you know, asked to hear about it. It's kind of cool to think back. You forget about the stuff you've done because you're so focused on, you know, what you're doing now. So it was kind of cool to think back on my time in Mali and, and what we did there. And I had a great experience. It was a great tour. And so this was fun looking back on that experience. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for our episode on the CH-147 Chinook, as well as Jackie's experiences flying medevac in Mali. For the next episode, I sat down with Lieutenant Colonel Colin Peake and Colonel Chris Morrison, a.k.a. Morty, to discuss delays in the pilot training system. Many of the questions were taken from a Reddit thread we posted, and it generated some great discussion. You don't want to miss it. Do you have any questions or comments about something you've heard or have a topic you'd like to hear discussed? Send us an email at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com or reach out on social media at at podpilotproject. We absolutely love to hear from our fans. As always, we'd like to thank you for your support and ask you for your continued help with The Big Three. Share with your friends, like and follow us on social media, and follow and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya! Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.